0: Welcome to the Block School Podcast. I'm Brian Kloss, Dean here at the Henry W. Block School of Management. Block is Kansas City's business school, partnering with stakeholders throughout the region to promote inclusive prosperity. In our Block School Podcast, we will be interviewing business and community leaders, entrepreneurs, nonprofit innovators, and policy experts. Our goal is to share insights focused on Kansas City's business, civic, and entrepreneurial environment. We are launching the Block School podcast with alumni impact episodes, where we highlight the impact of Block alumni in Kansas City and beyond. Today, we speak with Block alumnus Nathaniel Hagedorn. Nathaniel is founder and CEO of North Point Development. Nathaniel founded North Point in 2012 and helped build it into one of the country's premier industrial developers. Since 2012, North Point has raised over $8 billion in capital for its projects. Serving over 365 industrial clients. Since its launch, Northpoint has developed and managed over 100 million square feet in industrial space. Northpoint's growth and success is very much tied to its commitment to providing great value to clients and offering an outstanding environment for Northpoint team members. Nathaniel, welcome. Thank you, Brian. It's an honor to be with you today. So, Nathaniel, entrepreneurship is all about filling an unmet need or finding new ways to provide value to customers. When you think back to when you launched North Point, what was the unmet need and how were you planning to go about filling it?
1: Yeah, that's a great question, Brian. I think when we started the company, I think we we really had a broad vision that industrial would be a great opportunity for us because back in 2012, the industrial market was continuing to grow and our theory was really simply that, hey, this e-commerce thing seems like a real thing, and and ultimately that's going to drive additional demand for industrial space as we start converting how we consume goods in this country from you know traditional retail channels like malls and big box stores to online, and that's going to drive additional industrial demand. So that was the thesis. I think the important thing for us that has been key to our successes is just being open. To the possibilities that how you can evolve in those ideas and the concept, because I don't think many businesses get it right. I think a lot of people, when they look at a company that becomes a large company, they think there was some grand plan that helped guide them to exactly where they ended up, fast forward five years, 10 years, 15 years. But I think so much of it's just an evolution as you meet people, as you make connections of ideas, and see what you get traction with in the marketplace. You just have to be open and be adaptable and be willing to let your ideas evolve to serve the market as best as possible.
0: So one of the areas that evolved for you over time relates to the Logistics Park Kansas City Intermodal. So maybe you could talk a little bit about how you identified that project, how you evaluated the opportunity, and how you went from the idea to what is now a massive operation. Sure. It's it's been
1: one of our most successful industrial parks, and it's really probably been the most successful industrial park in the United States since we broke ground on that project. And my business partner in North Point is his name is Chad Meyer. He's the president of our company. He's really responsible for our industrial strategy. And largely, I get all the credit for his good ideas. Uh, (laughs) But Chad is Former college roommate at the University of Missouri, Rolla, they're both engineers, had been working on the entitlement of the the Logistics Park, Kansas City, the LPKC project, we'll say for short. And uh, Patrick Robinson, who was Chad's uh, college roommate at uh, Rolla, was working on that entitlement project to get it. It was a multi year entitlement zoning battle to get that project approved because it was a very large project in scale. Chad knew Patrick well, respected Patrick a lot, and Ultimately, pushed and urged our company to get involved in that project. And I asked him where it was, and he described it. Uh, he said it's at the intersection. It can't miss, and sure thing. And that certainly proved to be accurate. But what's interesting about logistics Parkhand City, and really industrial real estate as a whole, it's kind of a humbling thing to say. But what we do doesn't really matter, which is is humbling to think about your business in that way. But what I mean by that is that. For our clients who occupy our industrial warehouses, rent as a percent of their operating cost to run a warehouse is about 4% of their total operating costs. The cost of labor to actually staff the warehouse, the cost of logistics, which is to move the freight in and out of the warehouse, are about 80% of the total cost. And so if Logistics Park Kansas City represents a really unique location on the map because the BNSF built a brand new several hundred million dollar intermodal facility here in Kansas City. And Logistics Park Kansas City is essentially a park that surrounds that intermodal. And we describe it as oceanfront property in the middle of Kansas, because the closer you are to that intermodal for our shippers, the more they save because truckers get paid in miles and time. And so by being able to be right adjacent to the intermodal, which is really an inland port, which is connected to the West Coast ports and, and obviously connected to the rest of the global economy those shippers are able to save a lot of transportation costs by being co-located at that intermodal park. And so we've had tremendous success. I think we've leased, built and leased about 15 million square feet at Logistics Park Kansas City in the last probably about uh, seven years. So it's been a wildly successful park. It's made a real big impact on the community and and we're proud to be associated with
0: it for sure. So when you first started North Point, did you have any idea that you might go in the direction of Logistics Park, that that would be something that would be part of your portfolio? Or is this just another example of how an opportunity arose, you had some competencies, and you moved in that direction?
1: Yeah, I honestly didn't think we were capable of doing it. (laughs) It was a big hesitancy just because it was a huge project by any scale or standard. And we had done some industrial development here in Kansas City. I had acquired some buildings, but this was really at a whole nother level of magnitude. So I had great concerns whether our firm was capable, right, both to raise the capital, to take on projects where you're building 500,000, 800,000 million foot buildings. But once I really understood that transportation advantages, we describe it as like a math problem our competitors can't solve, right? Because just the further you get away from that intermodal, the more expensive it is for your client to operate. And the inverse is true, the closer you are, the lower the cost. So that has definitely been, once I really understood the math of how compelling this opportunity represented for our clients, I realized this could be a great investment for our partners and a great project for our firm to take on so but it was no doubt an evolution for envision. I, I envisioned the company would be a tiny fraction of the size that it's become today and so I feel really really blessed to be involved with such a special organization and a special team that's helped create such a wonderful company.
0: It sounds like the growth has been tremendous and I've heard you talk about some of the reasons for the growth, including the culture that you have created there and your focus on some core values. I wonder if you might sort of chat about the nature of that culture, how it has produced growth and how those core values have been part of the equation.
1: That's a great question, Brian. And I would say today my role has really evolved. I don't, the, the team doesn't let me do many things because most things I do, I just grew up. And so <laughs> the, the, but the one thing that I enjoy so much is being involved and really being chief architect and really a defender of our culture as we've grown from we started the firm with eight employees and now the real estate size alone has 300 employees and there's several hundred employees for our other business units that we've started and founded along the way so it's grown to be a really big company i always worried that our culture as we grew would be sacrificed and i think what i'm really proud of well the culture has evolved you know when you grow from very small group of eight people to a group of hundreds of employees, culture does evolve. But I think what I'm really proud of is the culture and our core values have become institutionalized within our firm. And it's something we take really, really seriously. And I think management schools or business culture is something that's hard to be able to calculate a return on investment. But I can assure you that for our organization, and I would argue others, if culture is authentic, if it's Uh, people really truly are living into it i think it's the highest return on investment that we could possibly make because honestly a lot of what builds culture it's expressing your sincere appreciation to the team that's helped you build that company from every person in that organization not just executive leadership or managers but making sure that the maintenance team sees how much we appreciate the work that they do to take care of our clients And how our receptionist often will be the first person who will meet a guest that might be coming in to see our company from out of town. They'll be the first human interaction and and how well she greets and welcomes our guests to our office that she's doing a great job. And we want to show that authentic appreciation and respect. And make sure everybody recognizes that they're all part of a puzzle that it takes to build a really special company and so we really pride ourselves in just the simplicity of saying thank you right be creating a culture of appreciation our core values what we found with those core values is they have really guided us in all of our decision making and we're not perfect we make mistakes but i think the common theme is anytime we get in trouble it's because we Sort of lost didn't follow one of our core values and anytime we get ourselves out of trouble it's if we follow our core values to a t so uh, so the culture the core values and they're they're inextricably linked they're so important to each other is those reinforcing values and principles by how we conduct our business with our clients and with the people who we do business with and then internal of how we treat each other and the respect that we show to each other That's really critical. So Brian, I would say that our culture and our core values have been our secret sauce. Very few people leave our company over time. We've been very disciplined around hiring. We even have a team now that does culture interviews. So before we let people in, we, we certainly interview for the technical discipline, the technical aspects. Can they do the job well? But we have a secondary team that just interviews for culture. How will these people fit into our organization? And do we believe that they're just a good human being, somebody you'd want to spend your time with? And that's something that that is part of our important part of our screening
0: process as well. So Nathaniel, every organization wants to be nimble and innovative. They want to encourage their people to take risks. North Point is that organization. What about the culture has created an environment where people are willing to take risks, where they are willing to innovate, where they contribute to this effort to be nimble. Well, Brian, thanks. I
1: appreciate that. We certainly aspire to maintain that. Like anything, it's a journey. But I would say that as it relates to like how do you create a culture of innovation and how do you inspire people to take risk and try to push the boundaries, I think for us, we've acknowledged and realized that The only people who don't make mistakes are people who don't do anything, right? People who are unwilling to make any changes or make any adjustments or to try new things, those are people that won't make any mistakes. At least they won't make mistakes of commission, right? They won't make a very discreet mistake that someone could point to and say that was a bad move. So I think for us, challenge each of our team members. Our goal is not really to beat our competitors. Our goal is not to be some marginal better than our competitors. Our goal, it's kind of like the game of golf. Our goal is to be our personal best, right? And excellence is our goal. And we think if we continue to focus on how are we the best organization, the best team, the best culture, the best client partner, then we'll continue to push ourselves and make changes. And that's a never-ending journey, right? Where not that we want to create a never-ending journey, but in many respects, that's what causes you to innovate. And if you stop innovating and you stop that drive towards your excellence, I can assure you that others will and competitors will, and they'll eat your lunch. And so I think that's the overarching concept that we try to live into, which is how are we better today than we were yesterday? How are we better a month from now than we were a year from now, et cetera. So that continued journey towards excellence. And, you know, we take steps in the wrong direction. Sometimes we think we're going to do things that's going to make improvements and we don't. So I would say that what goes in tandem with that drive for excellence is a willingness to accept failure and mistakes. And to acknowledge that failure and mistakes are just part of the journey. They are just part of what a learning organization goes through. And I think if you create a culture that punishes mistakes, several things happen as you grow. You're going to do lots of things, and some of those things aren't going to work. And the things that aren't going to work, if leadership says, thou shalt never allow this to happen again, right? Then the organization builds this infrastructure to avoid that specific set of examples ever occurring again. And so that's fine. You may not have the organization may never suffer whatever it is that happened again, but you will suffer lots of other things, right? You'll suffer people stop trying, people get embarrassed because they tried something it didn't work. So we think as long as your heart's in the right place and you tried your best, we try to be an organization that acknowledges failure is just part of the journey. And the alternative is you build this infrastructure bureaucracy, right, to protect from something bad or perceived as bad occurring again, which has all kinds of pain and problems in and of itself. Or secondarily, if you don't have that occur. <laughs> If you punish mistakes, we you know publicly chop people's head off or whatever. A lot of organizations don't handle mistakes real well. What happens is the team will just stop doing new things, right? They will stop innovating because they're not rewarded to innovate, right? And then secondarily, even worse than that, if they do try something, a mistake is made. <laughs> And then they're afraid they're going to lose their job or be embarrassed, then they start the cover up. So essentially, if the only alternative to accepting mistakes and failure as a regular part of business are really bad, right? <laughs> they're either bureaucracy. If it's not that, then it's lack of innovation and trying new things. Or the third door is cover-ups. So none of those are something we want to encourage. So we've tried as best as we can to be an organization that acknowledges that we want our team to be pushing towards their personal best and excellence. And that means they're going to try new things and try to take new risks. And things aren't going to go perfectly every time.
0: Related to culture, organizations are always trying to create an environment that is, that is inclusive, where people feel comfortable expressing ideas that are different from the leaders' ideas, where diverse perspectives are brought to the table. How does your culture encourage that kind of inclusive kind of outlook?
1: Yeah. I think universities are often sometimes coined kind of the ivory towers, right? And so I think as an organization grows, corporate culture becomes much the same, right? Which is people, they get afraid to approach senior leadership to say, hey, I got a problem or I got an idea. I think as leaders, I found that it's really important that we become as approachable and as engaged and as transparent as possible, right? So to be able to share with our entire organization, what we're thinking about strategically. So we've made a really big push as an organization to be as transparent as possible. So with our team, we share financial information, very detailed financial information. We have a weekly strategic leadership meeting and we share, here's what it is that we're working on. Here's the problems we're solving. Here's the concerns we have. We've started with COVID, remote work and everything that's occurred. People were obviously forced into work from home. We have had a great culture Whereas an organization, we've won Best Place to Work in Kansas City for eight years in a row. So we've really prided ourselves on the culture we've created in an office experience. And so this whole remote work thing was scary at first, where it's like, oh my God, how are we going to deal with that? How are we going to maintain culture when everybody's (laughs) at their homes? So we've really embraced that to try to figure out how do we, now we're not there. I'm sure there's a lot of organizations. Well, we might have been one of the better, certainly, hopefully one of the best cultures in Kansas City for our employees, for an in-work environment. There's a large portion of the workforce, I don't know if it's 20, 30% that really prefers a remote work environment. So we're trying to get good at that. And so we're experimenting with things, right? We're we're posting ideas like, hey, we're thinking of this investment and we're posting it to an entire team and saying, everybody, we're going to have a discussion on this on Friday with senior leadership, but we'd ask everybody to log in, put your comments, thoughts, questions, let people answer. And then we sort of have a succinct record of all the ideas before we make an investment. And anybody can contribute to that and say, hey, I'm worried about this. We need to investigate this before we go make a mistake. So we're trying to do our best to be transparent, to be open, to be available, to be humble, so that we don't become that ivory tower where people are afraid to approach leadership because they think, well, leadership thinks they know better. We got to make it clear that, look, we all the mistakes that have happened have been ours. Right. And so, uh, so we make them regularly and uh, we need your help. We have a philosophy, which is, Hey, if we make a decision and we need everybody to put their shoulder to the wheel. Right. But if you're on the bus and we're careening towards the cliff and you say, I think we should have turned back there and you don't say anything and we go over the cliff, like we're not going to be happy about that either. So (laughs) if you have an
0: opinion, say something, please. Uh, We don't want to send the bus off the cliff. And maybe we can go back in time a little bit. So why did you become an entrepreneur? You undoubtedly had options for more of a traditional corporate role. What was it about entrepreneurship that so appealed to you?
1: Well, I didn't know I wanted to be an entrepreneur. My mom, I had a wonderful mother, and she insisted that i get a job in high school i was kind of a lazy typical high school you know teenager right Uh, mostly interested in video games and pizza Uh, not terribly interested in working my mom made me get a job and my first job in high school i worked i think i made like it was like somehow there was a law that you could pay kids less than minimum wage so i think i made like four dollars an hour (laughs) and i worked at a pie pantry cleaning dishes and it was just disgusting it was hot humid gross you know cleaning up plates and food. And it was really terrible. We had some family friends that owned the little pie pantry in St. Louis. And I worked my full day, full shift. And I told them, I'm not coming back, uh, but uh, you can keep my wages. So, But my mom still insisted I get a job. So I got a lawnmower and I started mowing people's lawn in, in high school. And that got to be a a really nice business and that's where i found my love for entrepreneurship was building a little business and serving clients and making profits and i loved it and i had just a time of my life building that little lawn company and that's how i ended up in kansas city at the block school is I grew up in st louis but i decided i wanted to go to business school i was originally going to go to medical school that's what i originally had envisioned for myself was i wanted to be a doctor but I just fell in love with business and I just decided I was gonna own my own company one day. And I didn't know what it was gonna be, but I just knew that's what I wanted to do. So I decided to come to UMKC, uh, fortunate to get in and join the block school. Uh, Wet behind the year, 19 year old kid, moved to Kansas City, didn't know anybody and didn't know anything about business, didn't know what business I was gonna start. And I was really, really blessed to be in Kansas City. I really credit Kansas City and, and UMKC largely With my success, I think every person's journey, there's all these people that come in your life, that help you, that believe in you, that give you a hand. And I've just had so many lucky breaks, moving to Kansas City, coming to block school, meeting people, and then meeting eventually who I worked for, who was my mentor, Charles Garney, who was in real estate. I worked for him for 10 years before making the leap to start North Point about nine years ago this year.
0: And if memory serves you actually received an award from Henry Block while you were a student at the Block School. I did. Yeah, I th- I think they inadvertently accidentally gave me
1: an award I shouldn't have probably got it, but <laughs> I got an award for being one of the top students
0: at the school, so presented by Henry himself. So Yes, I
1: got a chance to meet him. Yeah, what an inspiration for Kansas City and a model Of entrepreneur, of of a servant leader and humbleness and willing to innovate. And I mean, everything we've talked about from the idea of acknowledging that there's this journey and there's a lot of unexpected things that occur along the way. So don't think, don't be so rigid that, hey, my plan is my plan and (laughs) let the market speak to you and figure out where the opportunity best lies.
0: So now that you are an established, successful entrepreneur, what sort of advice would you give to aspiring entrepreneurs? About finding entrepreneurial opportunities. Sometimes I hear people talk about we well, need to go into software development or you need a tech breakthrough. What are your overall thoughts about where opportunities exist? So, I think like software and technology, we have a
1: technology related company we've started that's working on some pretty cool stuff in the industrial logistics business. But listen, I would say, so I think software just generally is a great business, but there's opportunity everywhere, right? We're in an old line, mainline business, right? Building warehouses, right? Real estate. Uh, hasn't been a ton of innovation in that space for decades, right? <laughs> I mean, there's been more, you know incremental innovation, but... I would say that it's not been a hotbed of entrepreneurship or innovation, but we've carved out a great path and a great opportunity for our firm and our partnerships by doing things differently and being totally focused on the customer. And I would just say that for me, my leadership team kind of has to constrain me because otherwise I have 600 businesses going. I think we have six or seven (laughs) that we, we own and operate now within our family of companies, which I just love. I love watching a team grow and figure out how to win in the marketplace i don't know that i'm great at anything but i'm a better business builder than i am a business buyer i bought two businesses a few years ago and we spent about two million buying the businesses i think i would have had more joy of taking two million putting it in a barrel and lighting it on fire because that's essentially what i did <laughs> but i bought two broken businesses that didn't have the best customer list and didn't have the best culture didn't have good technology so you had to rebuild everything from scratch make it the way you wanted it. So I've just found that building businesses for me is the best way for me to express my entrepreneur. Now there's lots of people who are great operators who can fix things. But Brian, my sense is I see opportunity everywhere. And I think when our economy goes through an unfortunate situation like COVID, that's creating change, just massive amounts of change in our economy. And anytime there's change, there's opportunity for new people to build a better mousetrap and build a great business. And I'm certain that some of the biggest companies that will be around in this country in the next 10 to 20 years were created in this last year during COVID, because that's kind of the hotbed. When you have massive change, that creates opportunity for new competitors and
0: new emerging businesses. So where do you get good ideas? I know you've talked about how you devoured every letter from Warren Buffett. How is that a source of inspiration for you? And, And where else do you get great ideas?
1: Two things. One, I would say that uh, anywhere there's problems, that's opportunity. And so if, if you hear somebody complaining about something or you're complaining about something yourself, that's likely an opportunity that is in need of fixing. And that's what entrepreneurs largely can do, right? Entrepreneurs can fix and make better solutions. And that's how you win in the marketplace. So I would say that listening to other people. And I would really the best advice I try to when young people join our organization, I used to be young, I just turned 40. um, (laughs) And 40 seemed uh, so old when I was a kid. Now I feel like, well, it's not that old. (laughs) And so but, but uh, when young people uh, who are 20 something just joining our organization, I always tell them that the best career advice, and I would say it's a corollary for business advice, too, which is running at problems is really a one of life's great asymmetric outcomes, right? Because if you find yourself, like, let's say you, you're in an organization and you're, you're a young person and you hear of some major issue that's going on in the company or some problem you see on a team, and you raise your hand and say, hey, I'm going to be part of that solution, right? I'm going to take ownership. I'm going to be part of a team that helps solve that. What's the outcome? When I say it's asymmetric, like, you'd think that the baseline situation of doing nothing was basically a status quo. And if you get involved in that problem, and you don't solve it, you'd think your reputation would decline. What actually happens is if you get involved in the problem and you make an earnest effort towards it and you still don't solve it, people look at you and say, that guy or gal is a problem solver. I really respect the fact that they ran into the fire, right? And and so your reputation actually ascends even if you didn't fix it (laughs) because of the effort you made and the willingness to volunteer to help support the organization. And I think the second thing is if you fix it, your reputation just goes through the stratosphere. So what's ironic is most people think, oh, well, if there's a big problem, just stay away from that, avoid it. It's the exact opposite. If there's a big problem, run towards it. Not only will that boost your career, but if, same for businesses. If you're looking about starting a business, see a big problem, run at it, and you'll be shocked at how great of a company you can build just running at problems, not away from them, and how that will propel your personal career as well.
0: Now at Block, you are a finance major, and I've heard you talk about how you just love the concept of compounding. How does that guide how you make decisions and how you approach relationships?
1: Yeah, I think it's probably like a, in a Chinese proverb or something that they say, it's easy decisions equals a hard life, and hard decisions equals an easy life. So the idea is anytime you're at a fork in a road and you could make an easy decision for today or a hard decision today, that's more difficult to deal with today. Given the power of compounding, when you make those decisions, the hard decisions up front, you end up with an easy life, right? If you make a series of path of, Choices in life where you make easy decisions, you end up with a really hard life. And so we take that mentality at our firm and we think about things very much in the long term. And that's part of compounding. And, and we think about compounding not just as a financial instrument, but we think about it in relationships. Like oh, everything compounds, right? Uh, friendships uh, compound, your relationship with your spouse or significant other compounds, your business relationships most certainly compound. And so be thoughtful about the people you choose to do business with. Be thoughtful about the people you decide you're going to start compounding time with, right? Because you don't get that time back. And Buffett, (laughs) he shares a great story. I'm a huge fan of Buffett and admire, you know, how he treats his partners and obviously the brilliance of, of how he's invested, but he's got great stories of kind of just wisdom of life and one of the things that buffett talks about is that he found over time that his most successful investments were with just good people he described it as someone who you'd be proud to have say your daughter mary right someone who you'd be proud to call family that wasn't family right and someone you'd love to spend your life with they're just good people and he said they just produced the best business results as well and so what he mentioned he said what's interesting um is you know as people become successful sometimes that drives them to do even more to become even more successful And he said, marrying for money is uh, generally a bad idea under any circumstances, but it's absolute madness if you're already rich. (laughs) And so I think there's a tremendous amount of wisdom. And and his point is that you can't, you can't write a good contract with a bad person, right? It's the character of the people who you're in business with or counterparty to or who's your partner in your job and your company, right? Or whoever. So be careful about the people you pick because if they're a bad character, which most people are of good character, but if they're a bad character, it doesn't matter how good of a contract you have, you can't write a good deal. And I think the inverse is true as well, which is if you have a good person, treasure those people because they will have your back at all times. They'll always say good things, even when you're not there. I think that inversion of, hey, you can't write a good contract with a bad person, I think is true, which is you can't write a bad contract with a good person, right? Because the good person will say, I don't care what the contract says. We'll figure it out. Like, we'll make it right. And that's certainly a Midwest value that we found is something we try to, to do our best to
0: operate under. As you look back at your career, can you recall a pivotal conversation? that you had with a coach or mentor where they helped you see something in a different way? How did that conversation go and how did they get you to look at the world in a slightly different way?
1: It's a great question. I've had a lot of people have invested and believed in me and helped me in innumerable ways. I have a strong view that I have a significant obligation to pay that forward, right? My good fortune of people who believed in me. And there was actually, right after I got out of college, I went through a chamber of commerce leadership program here in Kansas City. And I met a woman, she was an executive coach. Her name was Marty Stanley. And she had a book she had written, which was Get Out of Bed and Use Your Ore. And bed was an acronym for a B-E-D was blame, excuse, and denial. And use your OR was an acronym for take ownership, be accountable, and be responsible, right? So anytime there's a problem, if you find yourself making excuses, blaming somebody else, or denying that there's a problem or that you're involved with them in any way, you're in bed. And that's not going to solve any problems. The best way to solve a problem is to use your OR, which is to take ownership, be accountable, be responsible. It doesn't matter if you cause the problem or not. Be part of a solution. And that goes with that same conversation we had about that asymmetric outcome of getting involved with problems, right? <laughs> it's uh, it's actually very, very positive. Well, that was the basis of that inspiration, was that concept, that that mental model that she shared of and anytime you hear yourself like making an excuse, just even in your own mind, right? Making an excuse or blaming somebody else, you just gotta realize I'm in bed, I'm not gonna solve any problem that way. I gotta use my or and if you can remember that acronym of you know, blame, excuse, and denial and ownership accountability and responsibility it's a very powerful thing that served me really well and served our company well and it's actually one of our core values as a company which is to take ownership of every situation that was inspired by marty
0: many years ago an impactful coach
1: yes (laughs) no doubt
0: so years from now when you look back at your work at launching and building north point what do you think will be your proudest accomplishments
1: oh no doubt it's the people my favorite thing is to see people realize their full potential. I think that is the most wonderful thing about building a business. The money—it's a nice scorecard, but it doesn't really matter, right? There's no your hearse doesn't follow you to your <laughs> your, your funeral, and so I think um, I think watching people become their best potential, and I've seen the partners at the firm that have become their best professional self at the company by living into our core values and pushing themselves and becoming a really effective leader and a coach and a servant leader. And that's just joy. And to see how the company can transform their individual lives is awesome too. Most every one of our leadership team members came from fairly modest backgrounds. And it's really proud to see how they can impact their families' lives in a really positive way through their work and effort. And and it'll just be a collection. I, there's no doubt my favorite thing will be the stories of people who I got to be involved with and see their lives evolve and their leadership styles evolve. And then to watch the pride of building something as they build their teams and they build their divisions or they build their companies. And to know that I was able to play a small part in their personal journey is that's fantastic. And that's my favorite part so far. And I'm most certain it's going to be my favorite part in the future.
0: So there's a lot of years left. So I guess the question is, how do you think North Point development will continue to evolve over time?
1: Well, I don't know. I never imagined it would become what it has become today. When we started the company, we set a 10-year financial goal that I thought was just crazy if we were able to achieve it. And this past year, we were achieving what I thought was a stretch 10-year goal every roughly 30 to 45 days. We were achieving a 10-year financial goal in that time frame. So it's certainly exceeded my wildest expectations so what does the future look like i don't know Uh, we have an emerging vision for the firm we call it factory to front door which is our real estate company largely serves big companies the amazons and walmarts and general motors of the world uh, big corporations that need really large warehouses throughout the united states but there's Huge segments of midsize and small company that could use supply chain intelligence, and and so we're doing some really innovative stuff around small and midsize companies. Some of our operating companies that aren't that the real estate company has funded to help us build and launch those companies, but I think they have really bright futures. So our vision of this concept of factory to front door really evolves around the idea of helping serve companies manage their entire supply chain from their factory where they produce goods to their client's front door and all steps in between from where should they hold inventory and how much inventory should they hold and what is the transportation and logistics cost and what's the lowest cost to provide that supply chain solution to ultimately distribute their products and
0: goods. Nathaniel, thank you so much for sharing your leadership insights and thank you for your contributions to this community. We have been talking with Block alumnus Nathaniel Hagedorn founder and CEO of North Point Development. This podcast has been brought to you by the Marion and Henry Block Family Foundation, dedicated to making Kansas City better. For more information about the Henry W. Block School of Management, please go to blockumkc.edu.